The Pre-Med Years, session number 171. Hello and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Uh, This week, I have a very special guest, and we're going to talk about reapplying to medical school, which isn't something, surprisingly, I haven't talked about much in the three-plus years we've been talking about pre-med stuff. And so, Christine Crispin was the former Dean of Admissions at UC Irvine and now works at the Keck School of Medicine doing some other things. And we're going to dig into things about applicants and why they don't get into medical school and what an applicant should be thinking about, what you, hopefully not you, should be thinking about when you need to reapply to medical school. So let's go ahead and, and welcome Christine to the show and dig into this awesome topic. Christine, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Now, let's start off just by figuring out who you are and and what your role is currently. Well, currently, I am the director in the Office of Curriculum at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. Um, In my, I guess, past life, I was the director of admissions at uh, UC Irvine, the School of Medicine down in Irvine. So I spent several years just as the director of admissions for the medical school. You were you were that person that every student <laughs> wants to know all of the answers from. Oh my gosh, yes. That's all right. We're going to get all of those answers today. I hope so. So today I want to talk to you about reapplicants and students that fail to get into medical school the first time. I was one of those people. I failed to get into medical school the first time I applied. But I think there's there's so much unknown, even with the first-time students apply to medical school, and now they're going to have to do it again. So that's what I want to talk about today. All right. If you could narrow down, and I know this is a, a huge starting question, but if you could narrow down the biggest reason students don't get into medical school the first time, what would it be? Um, well, to narrow it down, I guess in the big picture, they, there was something significant missing in their application. Um, most commonly, if their academics were strong, it's probably they didn't have enough uh, clinical exposure, clinical experience. So when I talk about my past and my journey to medical school, I always say that the reason that I didn't get into medical school was because I basically didn't have any shadowing. My, my GPA right. was, was really good. My MCAT score was okay, right. but I didn't have shadowing. So, so yep. you would consider that a fail? Uh, yes. Actually, I would consider most medical schools now look for a really strong amount of clinical exposure. They're going to say that they want to make sure that applicants know what they're getting into, that they've you know just gotten a feel for some things, there's no expectation that you have done anything significant clinically, but you have to have some pretty good exposure. And so I would even say that shadowing is the minimal level, meaning that 
you want to start with shadowing maybe your freshman year of college and even gotten more experience than just that. Explain explain the more experience part. What, what would that be? Uh, there's a number of things that I think people don't think of. Um, out here, there's something called a scribe, where students working in the ER following a doc, they're basically writing everything that happens during that visit. So what they're doing is they're getting some one-on-one time with the doc. They're obviously in the room with the patient during the visit. Um, they're you know, they may get to ask questions of the ER doc about the diagnosis, what's this particular situation with this patient. So that's usually a fantastic clinical experience. There's things like clinical care extender programs where you volunteer on different wards within the hospitals. Um, And again, it's usually a little more hands-on. It's a pretty robust volunteer experience. There are also things that I don't think people think about, which are hospice situations where you volunteer as a hospice worker, going and visit patients who are in the end stages of life, who working with the families, I mean. So there's a number of things that can really give you an exposure that just shadowing doesn't necessarily provide, that it still is within your scope of where you are in your education. There was a good phrase that I heard an admissions committee member say once about what what maybe would be considered clinical experience. And he said that if you're close enough to smell the patient, that would be considered clinical experience. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the patient smells like, but you just have to smell. <laughs> exactly. Just breathe. Just breathe the same air. Breathe through your mouth. It helps, I promise. Yeah. All right, so... So that's a huge fail on my part when I when I applied. I, I fixed that and reapplied, and I obviously got in. Mm-hmm. As we're having this discussion, it's the very beginning of February. Schools are wrapping up their interviews shortly and trying to finalize their their list of students that they're going to accept. If I'm a pre-med student and I'm still sitting by my email waiting for an interview invite, yeah. what should I start to what should I start doing now to prepare possibly to reapply? Well, I would say that you probably should have done this before you applied the first time. But now that we're sitting here thinking about reapplying, I, would, I really encourage students to do an assessment of your application and go from top to bottom. Start off with your academics. Um, generally, I, I tell applicants, are you within the averages that are posted on the website? So if the average GPA for a medical school is 3.6 or 3.7, are you within a reasonable range of that? Are you within the reasonable ranges of their MCATs? So if you really are confident in your academics, then you're going to move on. What's missing is going to be what's the, uh, the activities that are listed in the application. So obviously we've talked about clinical exposure. Um, you, that's critical, um, I think, in the application. I don't know that you can have too much. Um, with clinical exposure, you want to make sure that you have some of the things that we've already talked about, but have some longevity in that clinical exposure. Have it for a few years if possible. Have leadership experience within that exposure if it's, if it's possible. You know, grow within the role. Um, 
some schools, not all, but some are research intensive. So do you have research exposure? Do you have research experience? Do you have publications? Um, not all schools require that, but many do look for that. So you want to make sure you kind of meet that mark. Um, sometimes, what, what else do you have on your application? Have you gotten involved in extracurriculars when you were in school? How, did you work? You know, kind of how did you position yourself on your application that kind of demonstrated not only did you go to school and you know that medicine is your goal, but what other activities did you do to demonstrate who you are and what the altruism that you are dedicating your life to. There's a lot of things like that that they really want to make sure that they have that and they've listed it well. Um, also, what did you write in your personal statement? What, uh, what did you say? How, how did you say it? Were there little things, and these are things that stand out. Were there typos? Were there anything missing? Did you not answer something? How did you write your secondaries? Did you answer the questions thoroughly? So there's a whole number, a whole list of things that really can come into play in that application. And to be very honest, and the sad, the sad truth is there are good applicants who just don't get in the first time around because there's more applicants than there are spots. Yeah, and that's a tough pill to swallow for some, yeah. but that's just, it's, it's a numbers game. It is. You know, most schools have a cap of a number. Uh, Irvine was like 100. So you get five, six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 applications, and you have about 100 to 110 spots. There's a lot of people who are fantastic, who have amazing academics, who meet everything that I just listed. They have it in spades. You hope they get in somewhere else. They may or they may not. And for those 100 seats, you typically interview five or 600 people? Correct. Okay. So lots of, lots of interviews. Uh, I mean, yeah. small compared to the number applying, but a, it, a small number of seats. Yeah, it's, I mean, if you look at the application pool to the interviews, it's usually 8 to 10% of the the top 8 to 10%, whatever is deemed to be the top 8 to 10% are interviewed. Okay. When a student does this assessment of their application, obviously their eyes uh, are probably not the best ones to do this assessment. Is this something that a, a pre-med advisor is a good person to turn to? Absolutely. Um, Again, we're talking after the fact, but I really would encourage applicants who are listening to this who have not applied, that's the best resource to start with. Um, if, and the, the, even though the applicant's eyes may be somewhat biased toward their own application, I would caution an applicant to think that if you believe there's a small hole or that you think, oh, I could do this better or I could do that better, the admissions committee probably will see that as well. Go with your instinct on that one. Um, pre-med advisors, um, if you can talk to an admissions officer at a medical school that you're interested in, sometimes they do pre-counseling or post-counseling sessions, um, ask for feedback on your application and see if they'll provide any information to you. Um, ask somebody else to read it. If you know, especially if you know a physician or if you know somebody on an admissions committee that's done this before, ask if they'll kind of talk with you and see what areas could be improved upon. When in doubt, again, if you know your academics are strong, when in doubt, I would always focus on the clinical area. They need to invent a, an Uber for admissions committee members to look over <laughs> applications. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, I just need you for a couple minutes, please. And the minute somebody knows that you 
are involved in that, they become your new best friend and <laughs> they will find you. Yes, yes, they will, as I found you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but let's let's talk a little bit. It, it it's all well and good to have all of these plans laid out and laid out in advance. Mm-hmm. But I think the majority, unfortunately, of students aren't uh, aware of all of this stuff that goes yeah. into it. And and hopefully they listen to this podcast and they do know this. Right. Uh, when I've I've talked to students recently, I was at uh, the AMSA pre med fest and talked to some students that are still waiting for those interviews, and. It, it seems like as soon as they it clicks into their head that okay I'm I'm probably not going to get in this year. It it to me it seems like they're already behind the eight ball to reapply the next cycle. Mm-hmm. So there's really no time to uh, improve an application. Right. With those couple of months of okay I didn't get in and now applications are due again. Right. What is it? What would you recommend to a student? Would you recommend taking that year off and and doing a full assessment and and fixing whatever is wrong before reapplying? Yes, I would. I, I strongly would. And the reason is, is one. Let's be honest. Applying to medical school is very expensive. You've already, even if you don't get an interview, the um, just the cost of the applications, whether it's the primary and or the secondary costs, are fairly significant. And so. If you just jump back in with the same application, my question would be, why would you expect a different result? So I think it's smart because really when you see that there's a reapplicant uh, coming through your desk when you're reviewing them for an interview the second, you know, you're reviewing the application the next year for, the, for a spot, you're looking at it and it's easy to see because you put the dates of your activities and various things. So it's pretty easy to see who has taken the time to... Uh, do some improvements on their application. So if you're reapplying and there's really no clear vision or there's nothing there that shows that you've really taken the time to improve your application, it's fairly likely it's not going to work the second time around. So um, I would, I do think taking that year, finding a clinical experience, doing clinical research, doing something clinically related, or whether it's improving your academics or whatever, taking that year and doing it right. So when you reapply again the following year, your chances have increased. I want to get a a behind-the-scenes peek of of what it's like for you, uh, especially when you were the the director of admissions. Mm -hmm. When you see a reapplicant, what what does that mean? Like, what do you see? Is there a huge red flag on there that says this person was rejected already? Uh, Um, what, What does that look like to you guys? It doesn't, it doesn't have to look bad. Again, when I look at an application, when I would review applications, and I reviewed thousands of them each year, I had a method by which I reviewed them. So I did look to see if they had applied before, and I looked at their academics. And so you start wondering why they didn't get in the first time. You know, what, what was the red flag or what was the issue? And like I said before, sometimes it's just bad luck, and it's the, luck of the, it's the bad luck of the number. But sometimes, again, it's, it can be apparent. So I look for that. What, what is it that their academics are okay, so you move on. And then I want to look at the, the activities, the 15 listed activities that they put in their application. 
And if I can see things that they've done currently or within the last year, year and a half, then I know that they assessed their application, recognized some holes, and made some improvement. And then I look at them just with a fresh set of eyes to see how they fit, how they, you know, how are they performing based on what our current standards are for admission. So there's nothing negative. I just want to see that they've had some growth from the prior application to the current application. Okay. One and of the, and, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say all medical schools, I think they view it differently. I just know that's how we did it. I mean, there was really not held against them if you can kind of see the growth. Yeah. And, and I know Harvard sticks out specifically in my head. They They actually have the rule that you can't apply to Harvard more than twice. Wow. Which is very uh, strange, but... <laughs> yeah, that's I, rough. I, I guess they figure if you if you didn't do the well the first two times, then don't bother wasting your money or their time. You know, I would say, in, in general, if you've applied to medical school more than about three times and you haven't gotten in, there's something going on and it, you might want to consider some alternate plans. I mean... At some point, what's happening in your application? Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, and a lot of times, I, I I worked with a student last cycle who had applied three times. It was his fourth time applying, but the difference the, the he got into school the fourth time. The difference mm-hmm. was that he had somebody actually look at his personal statement. He had somebody right. actually look at the extracurriculars that he was putting in. He had mock interview help. So there's there's a big difference between just throwing your stuff out there and hoping it sticks and actually seeking help from, from right. your pre-med advisors and from anybody else that'll help. Right. All right. One other big question that comes up all the time. Students feel, because the, the hard numbers of GPA and MCAT, students feel that the MCAT is probably one of the biggest differences that they can make quickly. What should students be thinking about when they're trying to decide whether or not to retake the MCAT? You know, that's actually a very good question. Um, I think the first thing I want to look at when somebody says, should I retake the MCAT is what is your current score? So I'm not as familiar with the new numbering system. I know it's in the 500s now. So if you're in the I'd say the 95th percentile, whether it's the old MCAT or the new MCAT or higher, if you're within there, well within there, uh, the school's listed um, MCAT range of what they accept, I would strongly discourage somebody from taking the MCAT again. And the reason why is you may go up a point or two. It's a nominal gain for the potential of a significant loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen... I, I mean, I one is standing out in my mind where somebody took an MCAT with the old score and instead of improving her science scores, which she didn't really need to do, she dropped from like two points, which could hurt her significantly. So it's, it's a high risk for not a great reward. If you're already within a high percentile rank of the MCAT score, you're well within their ranges, you're not, it's, it's not going to get any better for you. And it could hurt you. Now, somebody who has below the averages in the MCAT score for the school that, to which they're applying to, then they need to consider retaking it, but not retaking it a month after they take the first exam. Again, 
it's going to be impossible. How do you improve in that short amount of time? You want to take some time. You want to study. You want to um, know where your weaknesses are in the exam and then take the exam when you're ready. You may have to wait two or three or four months, but that's better off because you stand a, a better chance of improving rather than just dropping or staying the same. It's so easy for for us on this side of it to say it's it's okay to wait two or three or four months, which may mean pushing back your application a year to yep. to the to the undergrad it's like I have to wait a year that's like a lifetime to them but <laughs> but is. to be able to and you kind of stressed it already the application process is expensive, and mm-hmm. to be able to put together your best application the first time and and do it properly the first time would is just it's just so much better for everybody. Right. I worked with a girl um, on the, you know, kind of like you do, I do it on the side with people that I know. I worked with her for a year and a half and I actually sat with her on her application and I said, well, I think this is your area of weakness. Um, It's not bad, but I think this is your weakest area. If you don't get in, this is why I would encourage you to wait. She chose not to, but on the other hand, she was able, she still got into like three or four medical schools on her first time out. And I was absolutely not confident that she would do it, but we were able to, you know, she, she got involved in some of the things she needed to get involved with while she was applying. So, so tell me about that because I often talk about uh, quality and quantity and Mm -hmm. Students are scrambling at the last minute. They're they're putting together the applications and they're trying to get some shadowing in because they're missing that, or they're they're trying to get some volunteering in because they're missing that. Right. As as the admissions committee member, and you're looking at an application and you look at those dates and you see that it's only a month old, how much how much do you believe in that extracurricular activity? Um, you know, I think. I'm going to read what they write about what they did. If it's, a, again, a fairly passive event, then I'm not going to give it much weight. If it's something where they, you know, I see kids who do these medical missions to various places. If, if the level, the quality of the activity is significant and it's not just, this is what I call a passive experience where they're not just passively shadowing or passively doing something, then I could lend more weight to it. So I'm going to weight it based on what the activity is, not necessarily just the time. Okay. And I'm also going to have expected, as with the applicant that I worked with, that there was other things on that resume to help support it. Okay. So you're looking for impact. Mm-hmm. What impact they have. Okay. Yeah. One of the hardest parts for students seems to be getting strong letters of recommendation. Yes. And for a reapplicant, that question comes in, do I need to get new letters of recommendations? Right. What do you say to that? So I guess my first question would be to the applicant is, who are your letters from? Um, first and foremost, you always want to meet whatever the requirement of the school is. Different schools have different letter of recommendation requirements. So if they have an open just, I need three letters or six letters or whatever, it's easy to manipulate. If they have very specific expectations of the types of letters, you're a little more limited. So um, hopefully the letter writers, I would encourage applicants to keep in contact 
to some degree with the letter writers or garner new experiences to get additional letters or newer letters. Um, I do think admissions committees are going to be um, concerned. When you figure a letter of recommendation is written, it's usually written, I'd say, three to six months in advance of even submission the first time around. And then by the time the admissions committee gets it, the letter could technically be nine months to a year old. If you resubmit that set of letters the following year, now you're looking at a letter that's 18 months to two years old. So that's, that's going to raise a flag or two. Um, if you have, you have to have a letter from a science professor or something like that, and that's the one you have, I think that's fine if it's old. But then you want to make sure you have current clinical letters or current research. You want to have some currency, even if it's just one or two letters, and even if you have to keep one or two older letters. You want to have a good balance so they can, again, see that you really um, contributed into whatever new experiences that you had. And maybe you turned into a serial killer since your last application, and a letter might show that. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want that to happen. No, thank goodness for background checks. Yes. When when a student is writing their their new personal statement, mm-hmm. how much should should go into mentioning the fact that they've applied once and didn't get in? You know, I talk about personal statements as valuable real estate because you have I think it's 5600 characters or something that you can spend on trying to basically tell an admissions committee of which you have no idea who the readers are, all about you and why you're so great. So I wouldn't expend a lot of real estate on it, but you might want to just say, do it as a lessons learned. When I applied a year ago, two years ago, whatever it was, um, I didn't get in. When I did a self-evaluation and I talked to people, I realized there are some things that I'm lacking. I've gone back, I've done, you know, kind of give a brief few sentences kind of explaining how you have grown and learned from that experience and um, touch on it. Don't dwell on it. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't make it a negative. Use it as a learning experience and explain how you learned. Okay. When you would look at re-applicants, and we already talked about maybe the biggest mistake that initial applicants make what is a the biggest mistake that you see that reapplicants make when they're submitting their their applications again? They submit the exact same application from the year before, and there's literally no improvement or no change. That would be an easy one. Yeah, it's it's the person who maybe interviewed and got to a point, and then maybe they didn't really get rejected or something until April or May. And the new application cycle, of course, opens up in June. They immediately reapplied without taking just a few months even to reassess and figure something out. But they just jump right back in, reapply. And again, my question, I always ask this question to applicants is, why would we change our mind this time if we didn't, you know, if it wasn't successful the first time, why would we change our mind the second time? Yeah. Einstein's definition of insanity, <laughs> doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Expect a different result. Right. Well, Christine, 
what encouraging we've we've talked a lot about all the negative stuff, but what encouraging words can you give the pre med that's that's sitting on their applications now, waiting for that interview invite? What what can you tell him or her to to keep their head up and keep pushing forward? You know, it's my former dean used to say it's human it's the human eye and a little fairy dust sprinkled in and that's how we go through this. Have faith that if, if you know that you've done everything you can, have faith that it's going to come through for you. Interviews come in late a lot because um, now Apple, uh, a lot of acceptances have come out, have gone out, so a lot of people who have been invited to interview are being accepted and withdrawing from interviews. So spots are open. Um, so have a little bit of faith. If you are 100% confident, you know that your application is solid, believe that this could be your time. Um, it's, you know, it's a tough, I'm not going to, I don't want to sugarcoat it and say it's all going to work out well because it's a tough process. I don't envy a pre-med student at all um, because they, they pour their heart and soul into getting to this point and the disappointment can be crushing. So I, I hope that they don't allow it to crush them, you know, Take a step back. Start thinking about now. What are the areas that you think you can improve upon? Kind of, even if you don't need it, maybe you, your acceptance comes in or your, even your interview. Um, start thinking about it now so you would be ready. If you need to reapply in, in June or July, at least you'll have about five or six months of time of, of some improvement. All right. Again, that was Christine Crispin. Great conversation about what to do if you don't get into medical school the first time, the the thought processes that you need to be having, the discussions that you need to be having with the schools that you've applied to, why you didn't get in, and hopefully you can get some good information from that so that you can make some informed decisions moving forward. This week, I'm excited to announce a new sponsor to the pre-med years, Elite Medical Scribes. You heard Christine in this conversation talk about how being a scribe is a great way to get the experience, the clinical experience that you need for your medical school application. She talked about how it's the number one mistake that students make when they apply. Let's go ahead and talk to Bailey from Elite Medical Scribes and how they can help you. My name is Bailey. I am a medical scribe recruiter with Elite Medical Scribes. Bailey explained to me the many different opportunities there are for students. No matter what you may be interested in, Elite Medical Scribes likely has a position available for you. Currently, we have over 26 specialties. We take the students' interest and try to match them in a location where they would really get a daily sense of what they would be doing in their career. Again, Christine talked a lot about the clinical experience that is so important for your application, and I talk all the time about relationship building. Being a scribe allows you an unmatched opportunity to build relationships with the physicians you are working with. They get to create relationships with doctors that they wouldn't necessarily get just volunteering or shadowing. It really just gets a foot in the door to a medical experience. You also are truly an integral part of the medical team while also just building those relationships. So it's definitely a great way to get that clinical experience for your applications. If you're interested in learning more about being a scribe, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash EMS. 
Even if you don't see something available in your location, you should still apply so that when an opportunity does arrive and does open up, elite medical scribes can reach out to you. Again, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash EMS to see how elite medical scribes can help you grow as a pre-med and help you get into medical school. Thank you, Elite Medical Scribes, for supporting the show. I also want to take a little bit of time to thank the few people that have left us ratings and reviews in iTunes. If you haven't done so, you can go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes and leave us a rating and review. We have Mike Igle. I think that's Igle, I-G-L-E, Igle. I get so bad at these names. <laughs> anyway, Mike says, extremely important pre-med advice. I can't believe it took me so long to write this review, so apologies. Listening for about a year, currently at, oh, currently at the pre-med AMSAFest. I know this Mike. I met him at pre-med AMSAFest. Mike, thank you for writing this review, and uh, thank you for saying hi to me at pre-med AMSAFest. All right, we have... Uh, Neutrophil, who says solid guidance. Ryan and Allison are fantastic. Discovered the pod that podcast last year, but have binged the last episodes over the last few weeks while working. Great guests, great guests with diverse and unique stories. And he goes on some more. Thank you, Neutrophil, for, Neutrophil Connors, for that review. We also have. Uh, Francesca Good, who says, the pre-med advisor I never had. And that's, I think, the best the best review that anybody can say, the best uh, that, that were the pre-med advisor they never had, because so many of you listening don't have access to pre-med advisors, and hopefully we are that for you. All right, one last review here from Ben62492, says, Ryan and Allison are dedicated to helping future physicians navigate the often stressful and tumultuous paths to medical school. Incredibly rich resource, Ben62492 says. Thank you for that rating interview. Again, if you would like to leave us a rating interview, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. Another amazing thing you can do if you don't want to leave us a rating interview is go tell your friend, your classmate, your roommate, your advisor, your teacher about the pre-med years, and hopefully they will start listening as well. I hope you got a ton of great information out of the podcast today. Again, I would like to thank thank Elite Medical Scribes for being our sponsor for today's episode. And as always, I hope you join us next week here at the Pre-Med Years.